Chapter Nine, Part Two of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Nine, The Other Fellow's Job, Part Two. That afternoon, after a visit from Harvey, who had been promoted from division engineer to resident and assistant chief on the Devil's Slide Tunnel, Carleton sent for Regan. Tommy said he, as the master mechanic entered his office. "'Did you see Harvey?' "'No,' said Regan. "'I didn't know he was in town.' "'He said he didn't think he'd have time to see you,' said Carleton. "'I guess he's gone back on number seven. "'But I told him I'd put it up to you anyway. "'He says he's along now where he's handling about half a dozen dump trains, "'but that what he's been given to pull them with, as near as he can figure out,' is the prehistoric junk of the Iron Age. I saw the engines when they went through, Regan chuckled. All the master mechanics on the system cleaned up on him. I sent him the old 223 myself. Harvey's telling the truth so far. What's next? Well, Carleton smiled. He says the string and tin rivets they're put together with come off so fast he can't keep more than half of them in commission at once. He wants a good fitter set up there on a permanent job. What do you say? Say, Regan fairly shouted. Why, I say, God bless that man. Hmm, inquired Carleton. Beezer, said Regan breathlessly. Tell him he can have Beezer. Wire him I'll send up Beezer. He wants a good fitter, does he? Well, Beezer's the best fitter on the payroll, and that's straight. I always liked Harvey. Glad to do him a good turn. Harvey gets the best. Carleton crammed the dottle down in the bowl of his pipe with his forefinger and looked at Regan quizzically. "'I've heard something about it,' said he. "'What's the matter with Beezer?' "'Packin' loose around his dome cover and the steam spurts out through the cracked joints all over you every time you go near him,' said Regan. "'He's had me crazy for a month. He's got it into his nut that he could beat any engineer on the division at his own game.' thinks the game's a cinch and is sour on his own. That's about all. But it's enough. Say, you wire Harvey that I'll send him Beezer. Carleton grinned. Suppose Beezer doesn't want to go, he suggested. He'll go, said Regan grimly. According to the neighbors, his home life at present ain't a perennial dream of delight, and he'll beat it as joyful as a live fly yanked off the sheet of fly paper it's been stuck on. Besides, he's getting to be a regular spitfire around the yards. You'll leave it to me. You'll go. And Beezer went. You know the Devil's Slide. Everybody knows it, and everybody has seen it scores of times, even if they've never been within a thousand miles of the Rockies. The road carried it for years on the back covers of the magazines, printed in colors. The Transcontinental's publicity man was a live one, and he played it up hard, and as a bit of scenic effect it was worth all he put into it. There was nothing on the continent to touch it. But what's the use? You've seen it hundreds of times. Big letters on top. Incomparable grandeur of the Rockies. And underneath, a scene on the line of the transcontinental, the coast-to-coast -coast route. Well, there wasn't anything the matter with the electrotypes, either. Nature backed up those ads to the last detail and threw in a whole lot more for good measure. Even a pessimist didn't hold a good enough hand to call the rays and had to drop out. 
Pugsley, the advertising man, was an awful liar, and what he said may not be strictly true, but he claimed the road paid their dividends for one quarter through the sale to a junk and paper dealer of the letters they got from delighted tourists telling how far short anything he could say came to being up to the reality. Anyway, Pugsley and the passenger agent's department were the only ones who weren't enthusiastic about the double-loop tunnel. It spoiled the scenic effect. This is Beezer's story. Beezer had rights through to the terminal and pictures of scenery, however interesting, and a description of how Harvey bored his holes into the mountainsides, however instructive, should naturally be relegated to the sidings. But there's just a word or two necessary before Beezer pulls out into the clear. One thing the electrotypes didn't show was the approach to the Devil's Slide. It came along the bottoms, fairly straight and level, the track did, for some five miles from the bend, until about a mile from the summit, where it hit a long, stiff, heavy climb that took the breath out of the best-type engine that Regan, representing the motive power department, had to offer. And here the last few hundred yards were taken with long intervals snorting roars from the exhaust that echoed up and down the valley and back and forward from the hills like a thousand thunders, or the play of a park of artillery. And the pace was a crawl. You could get out and walk if you wanted to. That was the approach of the Devil's Slide, on a westbound run, you understand. Then, once over the summit, the Devil's Slide stretched out ahead, and in its two reeling, drunken, zigzag miles, dropped from where it made you dizzy to lean out of the cab window and see the glacier river swirling below, to where the right-of-way, in a friendly, intimate fashion, hugged the glacier again at its own bed level. How much of a drop in that two miles? Grade percentages and dry figures don't mean very much, do they? Take it another way. It dropped so hard and fast that that's what the directors were spending three million dollars for to divide that drop by two. It just dropped. Not an incline, not by any means, just a drop. However, when it was all over, the cause of it figured out something like this. We'll get to the effect and Beezer in a second. Engine 1016, with number one, the Imperial Limited, westbound, and with McAllister in the cab, blew out a stable one afternoon about two miles west of the bend. And, uh, quicker than you could wink, the cab was all live steam and boiling water. The firemen screamed and jumped. McAllister, blinded and scalded, his hands literally torn from the throttle and air before he could latch in, fell back half unconscious to the floor, wriggled to the gangway, and flung himself out. He sobbed like a broken-hearted child afterwards when he told his story. "'I left her,' he said. "'I couldn't help it. The agony wasn't human. I, I couldn't stand it. I was already past knowing what I was doing. But, but the thought went through my mind that the pressure'd be down and she'd stop herself before she got up the mile climb to the summit. That's the last I remember. Dave Kinlock, the conductor, testified that he hadn't noticed anything wrong until after they were over the summit. They'd come along the bottoms at a stiff clip, as they always did, to get a start up the long grade. They had slackened up almost to a standstill, as usual, when they topped the summit. Then they commenced to go down the slide, and were speeding up before he realized it. 
He put on the emergency brakes then, but they wouldn't work. Why? It was never explained. Whether the angle cock had never been properly thrown into its socket and had worked loose and shut off the air from the coaches, or whether, and queerer things than that had happened in railroading, it just plain went wrong. No one ever knew. They found the trouble there, that was all. The emergency wouldn't work, and that was all that Dave Kinlock knew then. Now, Beezer had been out on the construction work about two weeks when this happened, about two of the busiest weeks Beezer ever put in in his life. Harvey hadn't drawn the long bow any in describing what the master mechanics had put over on him to haul his dump carts with. They were engines of the vintage of James Watt, and Beezer's task in keeping them within the semblance of even a very low coefficient of efficiency was no sinecure. Harvey had six of these monstrosities, and as he had started his work at both ends at once, with a cutting at the eastern base of the Devil's Slide and another at the summit, he divided them up three to each camp, and it kept Beezer about as busy as a one-handed paper hanger with the hives, running up and down answering first-aid hurry calls from first one and then the other. The way Beezer negotiated his mileage was simple. He'd swing the cab or pilot of the first train along in the direction, up or down, that he wanted to go, and that's how he happened to be standing that afternoon on the track opposite the upper construction camp about a hundred yards below the summit, when number one climbed up the approach, poked her nose over the top of the grade, crawling like a snail that's worn out with exertion, and then began to gather speed a little, toboggan-like, as she started down the devil's slide toward him. Beezer gave a look at her and rubbed his eyes. There wasn't anything to be seen back of the oncoming big mountain racer's cab but a swirling white vapory cloud. It was breezing pretty stiff through the hills that day, and his first thought was that she was blowing from a full head, and the wind was playing tricks with the escaping steam. With the next look he gulped hard. The steam was coming from the cab, not the dome. It was the 1016, McAllister's engine, and when he happened to go up or down on her he always chose the pilot instead of the cab. Beezer never forced his society on any man. But this time he let the pilot go by him. There was something wrong, and badly wrong at that. The cab glass showed all misty white inside, and there was no sign of McAllister. The drivers were spinning, and the exhaust, indicating a wide-flung throttle, was quickening into a rattle of sharp, resonant barks as the cab came abreast of him. Beezer jumped for the gangway, caught the rail with one hand, clung there an instant, and then the tools in his other hand dropped to the ground as with a choking gasp he covered his face and fell back to the ground himself. By the time he got his wits about him again, the tender had gone by. Then Beezer started to run, and his face was as white as the steam he had stuck his head into in the empty cab. He dashed along beside the track, along past the tender, past the gangway, past the thundering drivers, and with every foot the 1016 and the Imperial Limited Number 1 westbound was hitting up the pace. When he got level with the cylinder, it was as if he had come to a halt, though his lungs were bursting and he was straining with every pound that was in him. He was barely gaining by the matter of inches, and in another minute he was due to lose by feet. But he nosed in over the tape in a dead run, flung himself sideways, and with his fingers clutching at the drawbar, landed, panting and pretty well all in, on the pilot. A minute it took him to get his breath and balance, then he crawled to the footplate, swung to the steam chest, and from there to the running board. Here, for the first time, Beezer got a view of things and a somewhat more comprehensive realization of what he was up against, 
and his heart went into his mouth and his mouth went dry. Far down below him, in a sheer drop to the base of the canyon wall, wound the glacier like a silver thread. In front, a gray, sullen mass of rock loomed up dead ahead, the right of way swerving sharply to the right as it skirted it in a breathtaking curve, and with every second the 1016 and her trailing string of coaches was plunging faster and faster down the grade. The wind was already singing in his ears. There was a sudden lurch, a shock, as she struck the curve. Beezer flung his arms around the handrail and hung on grimly. She righted, found her wheelbase again, and darted like an arrow along the opening tangent. Beezer's face was whiter now than death itself. There were curves without number ahead, curves to which that first was but child's play, that even at their present speed would hurl them from the track and send them crashing in splinters through the hideous depths into the valley below. It was stop her, or death. Death, sure, certain, absolute and quick, for himself and every man, woman, and child, from colonist coach to the solid mahogany brass rail pullmans and observation cars that rocked behind him. There was no getting into the cab through the gangway. His one glance had told him that. There was only one other way, little better than a chance, and he had taken it. Blue-lipped with fear, that glance into the nothingness almost below his feet had shaken his nerve and turned him sick and dizzy. Beezer, like a man clinging to a crag, edged along the running board, gaining the rear end, and holding on tightly with both hands, lifted his foot, and with a kick shattered the front cab glass, another kick and the window frame gave way, and backing in feet first, Beezer began to lower himself into the cab. Meanwhile, white-faced men stood at Spence's elbow in the dispatcher's office at Big Cloud. Some section hands had followed Number One out of the bend in a handcar, and had found McAllister and his fireman about two hundred yards apart on opposite sides of the right-of-way. Both were unconscious. The section hands had picked them up, pumped madly back to the bend, and made their report. Carlton, leaning over Spence, never moved. Only the muscles of his jaw twitched. Regan, as he always did in times of stress, swore to himself in a grumbling undertone. There was no other sound in the room save the incessant click of the sender, as Spence frantically called the construction camp at the summit of the slide. There was a chance, one in a thousand, that the section hands had got back to the bend before number one had reached the top of the grade. Then suddenly the sounder spoke, and Spence began to spell off the words. Number one passed here five minutes ago. Regan went down into a chair and covered his face with his hands. Wild, he whispered, and his whisper was like an awe-stricken sob. Running wild on the devil's slide. No one in the cab. Oh, my God! There was a look on Carlton's face no words could describe. It was gray, gray with a sickness that was a sickness of his soul, but his words came crisp and clear, cold as steel, and without a tremor. Clear the line, Spence. Get out the wrecking crew and send the callers for the doctors. That's all that's left for us to do. But while Big Cloud was making grim preparations for disaster, Beezer, in no less grim a way, was averting it. And his salvation, together with that of every soul aboard the trade, came, in a measure at least, from the very source wherein lay their danger, the speed. That, and the fact that the pressure McAllister had thought would drop before the summit was reached, was at last exhausting itself. The cab was less dense, and the speed whipping the wind through the now open window helped a whole lot more, 
but it was still a swirling mass of vapor. Beezer lowered himself in, his foot touched the segment, and then found the floor. The 1016 was rocking like a storm-tossed liner. Again there came the sickening deadly slew as she struck a curve, the nauseating pause as she hung in air with whirring drivers. Beezer shut his eyes and waited. There was a lurch, another, and another, fast and quick like a dog shaking itself from a cold plunge. She was still on the right away. Beezer wriggled over on his back now and with head hanging out over the running board, groped with his hands for the levers. Around his legs something warm and tight seemed to clinch and wrap itself. He edged forward a little further. His hand closed on the throttle and flung it in. A fierce, agonizing pain shot through his arm as something spurted upon it, withering it, blistering it. The fingers of his other hand were clasped on the air latch, and he began to check. Then, unable to endure it longer, he threw it wide. There was a terrific jolt, a shock that keeled him over on his side as the brake shoes locked, the angry grind and crunch of the wheel tires and the screech of skidding drivers. He dragged himself out and crouched again on the running board. Behind him, like a wriggling snake, the coaches swayed and writhed, crazily swinging from side to side in drunken, reeling arcs. A deafening roar of beating flanges and pounding trucks was in his ears, and shriller, more piercing, the screams of the brake shoes as they bit and held. He turned his head and looked down the right of way, and his eyes held there riveted and fascinated. Two hundred yards ahead was the worst twist on the slide, where the jutting cliff of old piebald mountain stuck out over the precipice, and the track hugged around it in a circle like a fly crawling around a wall. Beezer groaned and shut his eyes again. They say that in the presence of expected death, sometimes one thinks of a whole lot of things. Engineer Beezer, in charge of number one, the Imperial Limited, did then. But mostly he was contrasting up the relative merits of a workbench and a throttle. And there wasn't any doubt in Beezer's mind about which he'd take if he ever got the chance to take anything again. When he opened his eyes, old Piebald Mountain was still ahead of him, about ten feet ahead of him, and the pony truck was on the curve. But they had stopped, and Dave Kinlock and a couple of mail clerks were trying to tear his hands away from the death grip he'd got on the handrail. It was a weak and shaken beezer, a beezer about as flabby as a sack of flour, that they finally lifted down off the running board. There was nothing small about Regan. There never was. He came down on the wrecking train, and when he had a look at the 1016 and had heard Kinlock's story, he went back to the construction camp where Beezer had been outfitted with leg and arm bandages. Beezer, said he, I didn't say all horse doctors wouldn't make jockeys, what? You can have an engine any time you want one. Beezer shook his head slowly. No, said he thoughtfully, I guess I don't want one. Regan's jaw dropped and his fat little face puckered up as he stared at Beezer. "'Don't want one,' he gasped. "'Don't want one. After howling for one for three months. Now that you can have it, you don't want it. Say, Beezer, what's the matter with you, hmm?' But there wasn't anything the matter with Beezer. He was just getting convalescent, that's all. There's a whole lot of men like Beezer. End of chapter 9